0: everybody, for allowing me to speak to you today. Um, and thank you, Pastor Dwayne and, and Joel. I'll call you Dwayne since you mispronounced Chantel's name. <laughs> Dwayne. No, Dwayne and Joel. Uh, thank you guys so much. We have truly, Chantel and I have been truly ministered to in this place and by you and just... This has been a transition season for Chantel and I. Uh, We were 10 years in the ministry, um, and then the Lord said, it's time to let go of that position that we were in and see what God was doing with us next. And so this whole year has been a real transition for us. And we've just received so much being in this place. And I'm so grateful to you, Duane, for just your personal ministry to me and care for me. And thank you, Joel, for your ministry to Chantel. Over the years, I know that it's been very valuable, and so I just thank you both on behalf of our family, and thank you to this house uh, for just the atmosphere that is here, and I actually want to speak a bit about that today, about atmosphere. Um, The message today is called The Open Heaven, and um, sometimes, you know, in charismatic Christianity, we hear this phrase... uh, Man, there was, an, there was an open heaven at that worship service. Or could you sense the, the open heaven? And, uh, and it's kind of lingo that we use to mean God's presence was there. There was a flow of the Spirit. Um, and, and it's a perfectly appropriate uh, terminology to use. But there's a theology to what I want to call not an open heaven, but the open heaven. It's really a uh, a theme throughout Scripture. We're only going to touch on a few passages that deal with the concept of the open heaven. Um, But it's something that we really maybe sometimes gloss over or miss or just don't see and don't believe for. Meaning, I want to get us to shift our thinking from the concept of, Man, there was an open heaven to there is the open heaven. Okay, an open heaven saying, hey, there was an open heaven at that worship service the other day implies that there's not an open heaven at other times. Now, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe that is true. I'm going to tell you it's not true, but possibly it is. It could be true. That could be the way we perceive the concept of open heaven. I'm going to tell you that the scripture has promised that there is always the open heaven. That there's not an open heaven, that on one lucky Sunday we had an open heaven over the worship set. There was an open heaven over that prayer time. I want to encourage us to begin to shift our thinking to realize that there is always the open heaven. It's the reality, actually, of Christianity. It's the reality of the New Testament. It's the reality of the gospel, and it's even wilder than that, but we'll dig into it as, as we get into it. When we pray, I want to encourage us not to pray an Old Testament prayer. Can we pop up the first verse? This is a really awesome prayer, and I've heard songs written about it, and I've heard people pray it out, and I don't think that it's wrong to pray this prayer per se, but I want us to shift how we think about this prayer. This is a prayer that Isaiah prayed prophetically. He was looking forward to a time when the people of Israel were really going to need God to break through. And there's so much that could be said about Isaiah chapter 64. Um, We're not going to spend time on it. I just want to read this phrase. It's Isaiah speaking to God in behalf of Israel saying, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. Go forward. To make your name known to our adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. This is a prayer of deliverance, and we all need deliverance. So, in that sense, this is a perfectly appropriate prayer to pray. But I do want to point out that it's an Old Testament prayer. The Old Testament's awesome, by the way. I'm not trying to diminish the Old Testament, but things shifted in the New Covenant. The reason this is Old Testament is because it's asking for God to do something, and now we get to pray in such a way that God has already done something. So, Here Isaiah is praying prophetically toward an event that Jesus was going to do in our behalf. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens. That means that you would violently tear open the heavens, that you would come down and that you would perform a deliverance so that everyone would know your name. I think sometimes when we pray, you know, if you use this lingo, an open heaven, sometimes we're praying, Lord, send us an open heaven. Do an open heaven. May we have an open heaven. So that stuff can happen that's cool. I don't think that that's wrong. I think that's appropriate. But I want us to shift toward. We don't have to pray like that. Do you remember how Duane was teaching us. This is a few months back. About the Lord's prayer. And how the Lord's prayer isn't a begging prayer. It's not. Oh that you would make your kingdom come. And oh that you would make your will be done. Here on earth as it is in heaven. But it's a declarative prayer. When you translate it. More appropriately, it's a declaration. Be done thy will. Come thy kingdom. On earth as it is in heaven. Be done thy will. Come thy kingdom. It's a command. It's a speaking forth of reality. You know, a key message of this church is obviously the motto, uh, where heaven meets earth. That's what the Lord's Prayer is, right? That it would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get to speak that out. We get to command that. The open heaven is all about that concept of where heaven meets earth. If heaven was closed, which at various seasons in human history, heaven has been closed off. If heaven is closed, then you get what I call a a theology of separation. God is way up there, and we're way down there, Way down here. And we have to yell up to God. God come and do something. And that's kind of the perspective here of this prayer. Oh that you would rend the heavens. And come down. That was the experience that they were having at that time. And then Jesus came and answered the prayer. Jesus did come and tear the heavens. We're going to look at how he did that. And he did come down. And he did bring deliverance. And now we get to live. In a whole life that's completely different. But I'm afraid that we often still live with a theology of separation. We often still approach life like God's way up there. And we're way down here. And we have to beg him to do something. Come and rend the heavens. But that's not what the scripture teaches us. So we're going to look at it. We're going to start with Genesis uh, 28. uh, Starting in verse 10, uh, 10 through 19. And I'm going to probably paraphrase some of this just uh, for sake of time. I hope that we've heard the story of, the, of Jacob's ladder. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that we have. This is a starting point. The word Genesis means beginnings. It means origin story. So anything that we want to find out about, we find its origin in Genesis. The, the Genesis, the origin of the concept of the open heaven can be found here in this passage. So, uh, you know, if you follow the story, you know that Jacob has been um, in this situation where he stole the birthright from his brother Esau, and then he had to escape. And he's, he's in a lot of trouble, you know? he, From a human perspective, he did a very nasty thing, and he was kind of a bumbling fool at times, kind of like us. And so he's escaping his brother, and uh, and so he, he, he's traveling, he left Beersheba, and he traveled toward Haran. Haran is where Abraham had left from. And so he's escaping to family that's over there, because his mom suggested he do that. On his way, he stops, he's still in what we consider the land of Israel, though those boundaries weren't drawn yet. And he stops, and at sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp, and Uh, stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. Can you imagine that, sleeping on a pillow? Doesn't sound very comfortable. Anyway, that's what he did. He, uh, He slept. He dreamed of a stairway that reached from earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. Next. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord. Let's just stop there for a second. This tells us something about the Lord. It says that at the top of the stairway stood the Lord. This isn't the, the spirit of the Father. This is something that he is seeing physically. In Genesis, you'll notice that sometimes God appears in an, kind of in an earthly way. He walks. He stands. He talks with you face to face. That's what it says with Abraham. He talked face to face with Abraham. You see, sometimes Yahweh would show up in human form. Sometimes it's referred to as the angel of the Lord, this person. It's called the angel of the Lord. Sometimes it just says the Lord. So here at the top of this stair, the Lord is standing. This is the second person of the the Trinity. This is Jesus standing at the top of the stairway. This is not God the Father. This is Jesus. Before Jesus has eternally knit himself together with the body that we call Jesus. Okay, So this is the Son of God. And so there he is and he says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to your descendants. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Next. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions to the west and to the east, the north and the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. He's confirming the blessing of Abraham on Jacob. Next verse. What's more, I will be with you. I am with you. And I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished every, uh, finish giving you everything I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. And we'll stop there. Now when it says this is none other than the house of God, he actually named it the Hebrew name Bethel, which means house of God. So he's saying, this is the house of God. It's the very gateway to heaven. We're going to focus on that phrase a little bit uh, later in the message. But here we're having an open heaven experience. It's the first, I don't know if we could say it's the first one, but it's the most significant one in Genesis so far. And he sees this vision of the Lord standing at the top of the stair, and angels are going up and down. There's this gateway to heaven. It's reaching from heaven to earth. This is a place where heaven and earth meets. And Jacob's impressed by it. He names it the house of God because how the Lord is living there. He was, I wasn't even aware that the place where I laid down my head, that's the place he's saying, at least, where the Lord lives. Now, we know, of course, that the Lord lives everywhere, okay? But Jacob really identified, this was a very precious moment in Jacob's life. Okay, go go on to the next verse. Uh, sorry, go back, because I think we may have missed something in the previous, the Genesis. Uh, okay, well, I'm just going to paraphrase. So after he declares that this is the gateway of heaven, he then anoints with oil the stone, the rock, that his head had been laying on. He erects the rock, he pours oil on it, he dedicates that place to the Lord, calling it Bethel, calling it the house of God. And then the, the rest of the story carries on. Now let's go forward into the New Testament because Jesus has a prophetic thing to say about what Jacob dreamed about. You see, sometimes we get prophetic things we have no idea what it's really about. Jacob didn't totally get what it was really about. And that's okay because we're in an ongoing growth with the Lord. So, the next verse is in John chapter 1, verse 51. And it's... After Jesus has been baptized, John the Baptist points out Jesus, says, this is the Lamb of God. Um, It's all about him now. It's not about me, John the Baptist. You guys need to follow him. And so Simon Peter begins to follow him. And then. Andrew and the, the friends come together and they begin to meet Jesus and they bring one of their friends, Nathaniel, and Nathaniel comes and Jesus speaks a prophetic word over him and Nathaniel's like, whoa, that's a crazy prophetic word. You must be the Messiah. And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, or so he says, you, you believe in me just because of that simple prophetic word? You're gonna see greater things than this, Jesus said. Then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is referring to that story with Jacob, right? And he's saying, you didn't even really understand what that story was that you've been hearing, Nathaniel, all your life going to, uh, going to school, right? Because he would go to a rabbinical school down the road from his house. He'd heard this story about Jacob's ladder many, many times, and Jesus is now giving him understanding, That ladder, that stairway, is me. I'm the open heaven. It's me. Think about it like this. You've got Jesus standing at the top of that stairway, and the stairway is an extension of himself. He's not separate from the stairway. The stairway is him, right? He says, I'm the gate, I'm the door. He says, no one comes to the Father But by me, Jesus is the gate. He's the stairway. It's an extension of himself. Jesus is a superhighway for angels, right? The angels go up and down on Jesus himself. He's the way, right? So when Dwayne was, I loved it. When Dwayne was talking about, you know, Jeremiah speaking to Gehiza and like, you need to, you need to see all the host of the angels that are at our, on our side versus the enemy. All of those angels are released at the command and on the person of Jesus in our behalf. That's amazing. So. When we think about the concept of the open heaven, when we think about this idea of where heaven meets earth, we have to realize that it's first Jesus. It's all Jesus. You see, Jesus is the answer to his prayer Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is 100% heaven, he's God, and he's 100% earth, he's man. Jesus is the answer to his prayer. So when we proclaim the prayer of Jesus, what we're saying is, Jesus, thy rule come, thy will be done. Now, we already understood that, but it's really all about the person of him. Sometimes we make it about something else, but it's really Jesus. He's the point. All the good stuff Jesus does, everything that's in the word of God is about Jesus, but Jesus is what it is. He's the open heaven. He's the stairway. He's the gate. He's the door. He's the way to the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, it gets crazier cooler. Because, like I said, this event where he speaks to Nathanael, it's like maybe a few days or possibly no more than a couple weeks since the time Jesus got baptized. Now we're going to shift... From the story about Jacob for a minute, we'll come back to it in this stairway, we're going to shift to the story about Jesus at his baptism and to his death, because his death and his baptism are related, right? Because baptism is a picture of dying and resurrecting, being drowned in death, being buried, and being resurrected. So... A few days, a few weeks before this event, when Jesus says to Nathanael, I'm that stairway, I'm the open heaven, there's an open heaven prophetic experience that happens over Jesus. So let's go to uh, Mark 1, 9 through 11. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, it doesn't say this in Mark, but John's reaction is, Who am I to be baptizing you, my Lord? You're Jesus. Right? And Jesus said, "It's so that all, my, all, all righteousness, all righteousness may be fulfilled." Jesus gets baptized for us. He didn't need to be baptized for a baptism of repentance. He didn't have any sin, but it's a prophetic picture in our behalf. In the same way that when Jesus went on the cross, we were all there with him because he took us on. In that same way, we were all there with Him. When he went down into the water. That's how all righteousness. All righteousness gets fulfilled for you and me. In Jesus' prophetic act to be baptized. And to be brought out of the water. It was also a declaration of the beginning of his ministry. So. Jesus, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water. He saw heaven being torn open. It's pretty dramatic language. Sounds a little bit like Isaiah 64, the rending of heaven. And the Spirit descended on him like a dove. The first thing's violent, the second thing is peaceful. The opening of heaven is a tearing. It's the Greek word schizo. It's where we get the word schism, like when a church split happens. It's a schism. It's a violent tearing. When people get divorced, it's a schism. It's violent. It's painful. The heavens were being schizoed. But then through that, peace, a dove, the presence of the Holy Spirit was coming. In Jesus' baptism, picturing death, there was violence. There was a tearing. And it allowed for our peace. What Isaiah said, the punishment for our sin, the punishment which which brings us peace was upon him. So the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus after this violent tearing. And that's when we begin to see the miracles. Because Jesus in his humility as we've been taught. Wasn't doing his miracles out of his godness. He'd kind of tied that behind his back. And allowed the Holy Spirit to move through him. As a picture for us. Just as baptism was something we were supposed to follow Jesus in. So as we are baptized then we move in the movement of the spirit. But we're not there yet. We're just with Jesus and his baptism and his dove experience. Scholars have noted that there is a parallel between this beginning act of Jesus' ministry and the ending act of his earthly ministry before his resurrection. So let's skip forward to Mark um, 15. When Jesus died, it paralleled when Jesus was baptized. And we don't have time to go into all the ways that this passage that, that Mark wrote is is purposefully parallelism between the baptism event and the crucifixion event. But I'm just going to point out a couple just so we pick up on it. It says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's schizo there. So that's one of the parallelisms. There's a violent tearing of this temple curtain. It was schizoed in two. Wait, uh, go back because I missed a couple words there. From top to bottom. From the heavens to the earth. That's part of the parallelism. The the dove came from the torn heaven down to the earth on Jesus. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now when Jesus was baptized, what were the immediate words after his baptism? Jesus and everyone heard This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. After the tearing of the heaven and the descending of the dove, Jesus is proclaimed as the Son of God. After the tearing of the curtain, which was from heaven to earth, He's proclaimed as the Son of God. But it gets even crazier than that. Because from a first century Jewish perspective, and we don't have time to go into all that the temple represented, but we're going to touch on a few things. This curtain which separated the holy of holies from the holy place, perhaps you've heard teaching on this before. I'm hoping that that's the case. The holy of holies represents heaven. When we speak of heaven, we mean the third heaven, the throne room of God. And in a first century Jewish mind, the holy place, the room that was divided, the curtain divided, the most holy place from the holy place, that was viewed as the place of earth. It represented earth because that's where the priests... We're constantly ministering to God. But only once a year could the one high priest go into the holy place, heaven, to minister to the needs of Israel in the heavenly place, in the most holy place. So only once a year could anyone go behind that curtain. And it was only the high priest. That was a picture that only one high priest, only one pure one, Jesus, could go into heaven and make sacrifice for us. But the rest of the time, the priestly community is making intercession for the earthly realm. That's intercession into the heavenly realm. We're following this idea here? Okay. So the, the earthly realm where the priests are, and by the way, we're New Testament priests. That's the earth. That's where the, what we call the first heaven is. The invisible realm where the, the battle with angels and demons is going on around us. Then there's the second heaven. That's what we call the sky. And yes, there are battles between angels and demons there. And then there's the third heaven, the throne room of God. So in this temple picture, we've got the earthly realm, the first heaven. And we've got the third heaven, which is the throne room of God. It's the holy place. So where's the the second heaven? Where's the sky place? The curtain was the picture of the sky. In fact, the colors... And remember, when Moses was told the pattern of what the temple was supposed to be like, he said to Moses, you've got to do it exactly like I show you, because this is a pattern of what's in heaven, of what it's all like. So when you're doing it, you're bringing heaven to earth when you build my temple. My, well, at this point, the tabernacle. I want the curtain to be made with color purple, crimson, which is reddish, and blue. It was a majority blue, like the sky. And God didn't say it at the time to Moses, but subsequent interpreters understood that those colors were the colors of the sky and what was called the firmament, the the universal distance, the boundary line between this realm and that realm. In fact, they interpreted it so much this way that Josephus, a historian at the time, kind of just after Jesus, gave us record that the way that they embroidered that curtain actually had imagery of the heavens on it. Stars, angelic beings. It was supposed to represent the sky, the second heaven. And so when Jesus died, the curtain of the heavens was torn. Heaven was opened. From the third heaven, releasing the third heaven into the first heaven, the earthly realm. It was a violent schizo, right? This thing, they say, was the the handbreadth of a man's hand. So that's how thick this curtain was. Pretty thick. It was 80 feet high. It's pretty big. Only a miracle could tear that thing from top to bottom. Because who's going to get to the top, even if they could? And who's going to have the equipment to try and tear that thing? Only God could do that. Only God could rip it from top to bottom. No one could even bother trying to rip it from bottom to top. That would be hard enough, but at least a human could try. No human could try and rip it from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. And here it was, the curtain representing the heavens, representing that barrier, gets torn open for us. The heavens got opened. And just like the heavens were violently torn open and then a dove descended on Jesus, when the curtain was violently torn open, the presence of God that was enthroned on the ark is released. The dove of God, the Holy Spirit, was released and 50 days later you have Pentecost and Pentecost actually happened in the temple courts but will that's it for another day. It moved out and that dove landed on the people of God. So let's go back to the metaphor of the stairway from heaven to earth. Wherever Jesus goes, his anointing goes. So when Jesus went to Nazareth, his anointing was in Nazareth. People couldn't receive it. They had a hard time with that. But when his anointing went to Jerusalem, his anointing was in Jerusalem. The word anointing means chosenness. It literally means to be poured with oil. But they would pour oil on the chosen one. So if a king was chosen to be king, they'd pour oil on him. If a priest was chosen to be priest, they'd pour oil on him. If a prophet was chosen to be a prophet, they'd pour oil on him. Jesus was all of those. He was king, priest, and prophet. He was anointed with the oil of the Holy Spirit. So wherever he goes, his anointing goes. His anointing is the Holy Spirit. Which means that if Jesus goes inside of you, his anointing goes on you. Right? That's the simplicity of the gospel. I asked Jesus into my heart, which means Holy Spirit came along with. The anointing came. Some people struggle with, am I anointed? If you know Jesus, then yes, you're anointed. Because the word Christos, Jesus Christ, the Greek Christos, means the anointed one. And the word Christian means little Christ. Christ. Little anointed one. So if you take the title Christian, and you really believe in Jesus, you're anointed. Because Jesus came in you, and he brought his anointing with him. Jesus also brought the stairway with him. There is a superhighway of angelic presence flowing through your life. There is not a theology of separation There's not a theology waiting for an open heaven. The open heaven is already over your life. Do you believe it? Do we believe that our life is a superhighway of heaven? Do we believe that our life is an anointed life with the dove upon it? Do we believe that we don't have to beg for an open heaven, but we can declare the open heaven? So think about it like this. When you're in a worship service and you felt an open heaven, you're just experiencing the open heaven that everyone at that time is actually believing in. That's the difference. When you experience what we call an open heaven, man, that was really anointed. Hallelujah, brother and sister. I can't even believe how glorious that day was. It was because everyone in the room, or at least a majority of the people in the room, were actually believing what is already true, that the heavens were violently torn open so that the peace of God could come. So that the anointing of God could come. So that the angelic realm could be released. And it gets released through you. It's the people in the room. It's not the church building. Because the house of God, the Bethel, the temple is now us. We're the house. So if we could flip all the way back. Don't worry about it. Let's Let's just review it. So. Jacob has this dream, right? I'm going to tell you, we love Jacob. Jacob's awesome. Jacob kind of missed it just a little bit. Because what was God saying to Jacob? He was promising him land, land that was much bigger than this little stone that he anointed. It was a big promise for land. But it wasn't even really about land in the end. He, God ends with saying this. He says, I, and I will be with you. He didn't say, and I will be with this place. Even though that place was going to belong to Jacob. He says, I'm going to be with you. But when Jacob wakes up, he's like, I had no idea, but God is in this place. I better stand up a stone because that's what we do. And I better anoint the stone. It's a chosen place. Okay, well, that's nice and that's cute. That definitely would have fit his worldview, but he missed where the open heaven was happening. Was the open heaven actually happening on that plot of land, or was it happening inside of him? It was a dream. The stairway was leading to his head. You get what I'm saying? It was leading to his spirit. How do I know this is true? That sounds a little goofy, Garrett, because he actually named it Bethel. It gets called Bethel, the rest of history. That's true. Do you know that you would think that if it was supposed to be the place of the house of God, then when the Israelites got there, the tabernacle would be set up there. It did get set up there for a very brief period during the high priesthood of Phinehas. Very brief period. But for 300 years before they started working toward building the temple in Jerusalem, not Bethel, It was in Shiloh. name Shiloh means peace. Like the dove, right? The presence. So, I'm not saying it was a bad idea to name that place Bethel. That's fine. But he missed the fact that God was speaking to him. You're the Bethel. I will be with you. Wherever you go, I will go. You're the Bethel. You're the house of God, Jacob. The anointing doesn't belong on the rock. The anointing belongs on you. You're the anointed one, Jacob. I've chosen you. Israel's going to come out of you. The Messiah's going to come out of you. The people of God are going to come out of you. But even today, we can do the same thing. Oh, wow, they really have an open heaven down there in Bethel, Reading, And I honor what they're doing down there. Obviously, it's awesome. But it's not about there they've tapped into the reality of what we're talking about today. It's not about a place. It's about a people. It's about a people who really embrace not the concept of an open heaven, but the open heaven. It's about a people who will declare and proclaim the open heavens already happened, that the, t- the temple uh, veil was already torn, that the superhighway lives inside of me. We want to anoint other things. We want to say, I'm not anointed. I don't do anything cool. And God's saying, no, I freaking live in you. The highway is inside of you. I'm the door, but wherever I go, my door comes with me. Will you let me walk through? I'm the gate. Will you let me walk through? Because sometimes we're like, I can't do it. I'm not this. I'm not that. And we keep the gate shut. Through unbelief. But the curtain's been torn open. The curtain's been torn open. The place where heaven and earth meets has been torn open. It's available all the time if we would believe for it. The next crazy thing, and this is where we'll end. Sometimes when we experience an open heaven, it's because we're with a big group of people who are believing for that thing. That's right. That's good. That's what it should be. We should just express it a little bit different. That's because we were living in the open heaven. You see, when Jacob said, I didn't even realize it. I didn't know that I was in the place. Because he was thinking, he was uh, identifying it with place. Where God's house is. This is the very gate of heaven, he says. Jesus is the gate. We talked about that. But the word gate also means this. If you've studied Hebraic culture or Middle Eastern culture in general, the gate, is the place where the city council would meet, where the the ruling authorities of the town or city would meet, where they'd meet at the gate. That was so they could decide who could come in and who couldn't come in. So there was a, a place of discernment there. Sometimes the word gate, because it was the place where the city council met, became just a a shorthand way of saying, the entire city itself. Because if the leaders meet there and decisions are happening there, that means it represents the whole city. So sometimes in the Old Testament, the word gate is used, but it's translated in your translation as the city. So it could just as easily say, I didn't realize it, but this is the place of the city of God. This is the place of the authoritative decisions of God. It's the gate. We're the city of God, right? We're a nation of priests. A royal priesthood. We're the city. We're the gate. If we would use our authority, we could make authoritative decisions. Because Mr. Gate lives inside of us. He wants to release his authority on the earth through our gate. The gate that we have become. This is who we are. Are we willing to embrace it? Are we willing to embrace it and not shuffle it off, not anoint a stone when we should be anointing ourselves or at least recognizing the anointing that's come. If you agree with that, let's stand. Father, we agree with this. This is the reality. The heavens were opened. It's not an if. It's not a I hope so. It's not a we got to beg heaven to be rended open. You already rended it open. It's a fact. It's a done deal. And we come into agreement with it, Lord. We want to see more of the reality of what the open heaven represents and is and can accomplish because we choose to believe. And if you say yes to that, then you're agreeing with it. Just say yes to it. That We wouldn't say no to it anymore. Say this, Father, forgive me for anointing a stone. Let's try that again. Father, forgive me for anointing a stone. I receive the anointing. I'm the house of God. I'm the gate. Because you're in me. Grow my faith. I want to see angels ascend and descend on me.